Well, I'm not exactly fishing for your appreciation, but I just think you ought to know that Sally and I canceled our usual raucous New Year's Eve gala <laughs> so that I could be here this morning with you. So just ought to know it took some sacrifice on our part to make it here. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah, that's all right. Next year, there's always next year. Isn't New Year's a, a strange uh, holiday? I was just listening to some of the things that Doug was saying. You know, now we have new possibilities and new opportunities. I mean, it's no different than any other day, really, is it? You know, we, we assign it a new number, 2017 instead of 2016, but it's really no different than last week or next week will be. But it feels different, doesn't it? I mean, it feels like this is a new, a new beginning, new opportunities, and we, we take advantage of that to sort of try to make mid-course corrections and to make changes and to set goals and to do things differently. And I think that's really a good thing. I'm all in favor of New Year's resolutions. I think, you know, if you need to lose some weight or exercise or save more money or whatever it is, you know, set that resolution. Even if you, if you only do it for six months or six weeks, that's more than you would have done otherwise. So I would just encourage you to do that. But it's kind of an artificial beginning, isn't it? There's nothing really new about it. What I want to do today, though, in these next few minutes is to talk about a time when there was a new beginning, when everything changed, was marked from that event. I remember the first time going to Colorado and going up into the Rockies and coming to the Continental Divide. You've probably been there. And the signs that say, you know, this is the point where everything breaks. You know, the water either goes to the east or to the west. And there was an event in human history that was like that. It was the continental divide. It was the human history divide. In fact, we, we number all of human history from that event, you know, B.C., A.D. It all changed then. And I'm obviously talking about the birth of Jesus Christ. That that was the event that changed the most important thing about us, which is how we relate and know God. It changed at that point. So what I want to do to you today is to explain to you what I believe was so significant about that event that we've been celebrating during this season that we call Advent, leading up to Christmas, to the birth of Jesus Christ. God's intention was that we would live in perfect fellowship with him, right? The Bible doesn't give us a lot of detail, but in those early chapters of Genesis, we get a little glimpse of what it was like for Adam and Eve in the garden, living in relationship with God. I have a couple books that sort of fictionalize that and try to imagine what it must have been like for Adam and Eve in that perfect paradise, living in that perfect relationship with God. There's, there's just some of those passages that resonate with... There's one of them in a book called I, Adam, where, where Adam every day is sitting on the branch of a, of a big tree and he's leaning back against the trunk. And all of a sudden, he kind of holds his breath and he waits and he realizes that God is with him. And it's the one thing he's waited for all day. And it's the highlight of his day. It's the most important thing in his life. And he realizes that the God, who is literally his father, is there with him. And the Bible talks about God coming into the garden and walking with Adam in the cool of the day. It's, 
what I read that and I you know I hunger for that. It's almost unbearable to think about how how God had intended for that to be. But Adam and Eve chose to defy God, not to believe in his love or his wisdom or his promises. They disobey God, and the Bible calls that sin. And because of that sin, Adam and Eve are separated from God, right? They are cast out of the garden forever. Why was that so significant? I mean, so Adam and Eve made a mistake, Right? You know, they were sorry afterward. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is that God is a holy God. And I think one of the hardest things for us to understand is that God is a holy God. In fact, I would suggest that the whole theme of the Old Testament is the holiness of God. That from that point on, God is trying to help us understand what he is like as God, that he is holy. I I, I don't think we even understand what the word means, you know. What does it mean to say that God is holy? He's absolutely, totally, completely, morally pure, faultless, blameless in the core of his being, that he is a holy God. And there's nothing else in our experience, nothing else that comes close to measuring up to the holiness of God. He is a holy God. And so what God is trying to do from that point on is to help people to understand that He is a holy God. Because we can't understand who God is if we don't grasp His holiness. So what happens? Generation after generation, God paints pictures. He does things to help people understand that. He brings the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt. He brings them to to Mount Sinai where God is going to meet with Moses. Remember that story? And God is up on the top of the mountain and there's fire and smoke and earthquakes and everything. And God says Moses may come up on the mountain, but nobody else comes near. In fact, if anybody, if anybody touches the mountain, they die. Why? Because God is a holy God and you don't mess around with a holy God. When God had spoken to Moses just before that, remember? God says out of the burning bush, you know, Moses, take your shoes off. Because you are in the presence of a holy God. And this is holy ground where God is. Becomes a holy place. It becomes a holy time and a holy moment. Nobody touches the mountain. Because that's where God is and God is holy. And you don't approach a holy God. In fact, it says even if the cattle, if some cattle wander up there, they are to be killed. They're to die. Because you don't approach a holy God. God's presence there is recognized in the Ark of the Covenant. Remember like in in Raiders of the Lost Ark, that golden box with the statues of the cherubim on it, and it it represented the presence of God. And it was so holy that at one point, remember they are bringing the, the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem, and they've got it on an ox cart. And the the cart is, you know, old and it's, Ribbly and, and the ark is kind of maybe going to fall off and a guy named Uzzah reaches up and touches it, you know, to stabilize it. And he dies. And it seems so cruel and so unfair because we don't recognize, we don't understand the holiness of God. This represents the holy God of the universe and you don't mess with him and you don't approach him and you don't violate his laws or his will. And Uzzah dies right there. And they build the temple in Jerusalem. And God says, I will be there. 
And remember, it was God who gave to Solomon the, the blueprints for the, for the way the temple was to be built. And we look at it and we think, wow, you know, God is providing a way in which we can come close to God. But the reality is that the temple was meant to keep people away from God. So there's this little building right in the middle. So if you think about Jerusalem today, where the, where the Dome of the Rock is, there's this sort of big level platform and this little building in the middle of it, the temple building itself And it's surrounded by a big courtyard, and nobody goes into that courtyard unless you are a priest in Israel. And there's a wall surrounding that, and then another courtyard, and nobody goes into that unless you're a a Jewish man. And then another wall and another courtyard for for the Jewish women. Reminds me of when Sally and I went to went to Israel. We went to to the the Western Wall, what's left. This little bit that's left of the temple at the time of Jesus that Herod had built. And I was able to go up to the wall. I had to have my head covered, but I could go up to the wall, but Sally couldn't. She had to stay back behind a barrier with the other women, which made Sally really happy. Let me... (laughs) High point for her. See, but that's a pretty accurate picture of what it was like. And all of that's on this one level. People are kept farther and farther away from God. Then there's another wall. You go down five steps, there's another wall. You go down 14 more steps, and then there's another wall. And beyond that is the court of the Gentiles. So anybody who isn't Jewish has to stay out there. And they're down below, and they're separated by walls. And in fact, in 1935, archaeologists in Jerusalem discovered a a carved stone from that temple that must have been a part of that barrier wall to keep the the non-Jews out. And it, it said, in effect... You know, that anybody who trespasses this, anybody who goes past this point, who is a foreigner, it says, not that they'll be prosecuted, but that they'll be executed. For a non-Jew to go past that barrier meant that they would be killed. There's an amazing story in Acts 21 about the Apostle Paul. And people think that he has taken a Gentile into the temple area. And they are so furious, they almost literally kill Paul. They are beating him. Roman soldiers have to come and rescue him. Turns out he hadn't done that. But that's how seriously they understood this to be. And so all of us, you know, as Gentiles, we could look up at the temple, but we could never approach it. We're kept far from this holy God. And you remember the temple itself, just these two rooms, and in this little back room called the the Holy of Holies, or the most holy place, 15 by 15 feet, about the size of my back porch, There's this Ark of the Covenant. There the presence of God is. And nobody goes in there. If you were a priest in Jerusalem, you might spend your whole life and never go into the temple building. John the Baptist's father, remember Zechariah, talks about the time of John the Baptist's birth. That Zechariah, once in his life, gets to go into the temple, but not into the back room, not into the Holy of Holies. That's where the Holy God is. And the only person who could go in there was the high priest, and he could only go in for a few minutes one day a week on the Day of Atonement. And even then, the high priest had to offer the sacrifice of a bull 
for his sins and the sins of his family. He had to put on clean linen clothes. He had to bathe. So symbolically, it would be his sins washed away so that he could go into the presence of that holy God for a few moments, one day a week, one person approaching this holy God. And they thought it might literally kill him for somebody to go into the presence of God. They might die. And they'd tie a cord around his ankle so if he died in there, they couldn't go in to get him so they could pull his body out. Remember Isaiah the prophet at the beginning of the book of Isaiah chapter 6. Isaiah has just a vision. I mean, he's not really in the presence. He has this vision of God holy and lifted up and worshipped by these angelic beings. And what's, what's Isaiah's reaction? He says, I'm going to die. I'm going to die because I'm a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips and my eyes have beheld this holy God. God is holy. And the problem is that we are sinful. And I think we can't appreciate our own sinfulness unless we appreciate the holiness of God. And so once in a while in the Old Testament, God would give people a glimpse of how things could be, you know, how, how things might someday be. In that same book written by that prophet Isaiah, Isaiah talks about some of the people who are excluded from God. Remember, if there was anything wrong with you, you know, so even if you're a Jewish man, if you're, if you're lame or blind or you have some disease, you don't come near God because God is perfect. And you are imperfect. Now Isaiah, God speaking through Isaiah says this in Isaiah 56. He says, let no foreigner who is bound to the Lord say, the Lord will surely exclude me from his people. Which is exactly what has happened, right? They are excluded. God says, no. And let no eunuch complain, I'm only a dry tree. A eunuch, somebody who had been castrated, they could never come near to God. For this is what the Lord says. To the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant, to them I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. And I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. And foreigners who bind themselves to the Lord to minister to him, to love the name of the Lord and to be his servants, all who keep the Sabbath without desecrating it and who hold fast to my covenant, these I will bring to my holy mountain and give them joy in the house of prayer and their burnt offerings and sacrifices I will accept on my altar for my house will be called a house of prayer for all the nations. God just plants this little seed that someday, somehow there might be hope for the foreigner and the eunuch and the people who are far from God. And in that same book of Isaiah, the prophet gives this inkling of how that's going to take place. In Isaiah 7.14, says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. And so we can't approach God because He is a holy God and we are sinful people. Come on, Ed. I mean, we're sinful people, yeah, but 
I mean, what is the big deal? So we can't, you know, we look around us. I mean, look at the people around you. They're good. They're good people, right? You know, we think about ourselves and, well, sure, we're, we're sinners, but we're not Hitler, you know, we're, and we think about ourselves and our sin and it seems to us like, okay, it, it's a reality, but we're not that bad, right? We're not that bad because we don't compare ourselves to a holy God who is absolutely pure in every sense. You know, we, we think on a scale of one to a hundred, okay, we may not be a hundred in terms of personal holiness, but, you know, where would we place ourselves? I'm probably, a, I mean, I'm a professional Christian. I'm probably up, you know, 75, 80, maybe, something like that, you know. Where's Billy Graham? Where's Mother Teresa? Where are they? You're not even a one. You're not even a one on the holiness scale. And we think about the good things in us and the good things we do. You know what God says about them? God says on your best day, the best day you've ever lived in your life has been an abomination. He says, your good deeds, the things you're so proud of that make you feel good about yourself. Well, yeah, I, I donate blood to the Red Cross. United Way could hardly get by without me. You know, I make it a donation. You know, we think about the good things. God says, the best things, the things you're most proud of, the things that make you feel most holy, God says they are filthy rags. And it's not just talking about a dust cloth here. That word actually means if you, you've got some kind of terrible disease and it's eating away at your flesh and it's filled with pus and gook and all that terrible stuff and you've wrapped it in bandages and you take off those bandages and they're just soaked up all that terrible stuff and you take it like this and you don't even touch it and you carry it over to the garbage because you know it's going to infect you and get rid of it. God says that, that's your best deed, that's your best day. And you don't understand your sinfulness because you compare yourself with somebody who's worse. But God says you need to compare yourself to a holy God and the standard of holiness that God sets because He says be perfect because the Lord your God is perfect. And we are sinful people. And God is a holy God and you don't mess with a holy God. You take the shoes off your feet and you stand at a distance and you long to know him, but you know you never can. And then a baby is born in Bethlehem. And everything changes. And Matthew says, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and they will call him Emmanuel, which means God with us. God with us. What happened? Wasn't God holy anymore? How did that work? That this holy God of creation... would come into our midst and be with us. The Bible uses the word incarnation, carnal meaning flesh. It means God in flesh. You 
that God was suddenly not way off there. God was here in our midst, Emmanuel. And the disciples began to recognize this, that this is something, this is something humanity has never seen before. Jesus' disciple John was writing to some of those first century Christians and he's just so excited about it because it's, it's something so totally new. He says, that which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes, which we've looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. That life was made manifest and we saw it and we testified to it. And we proclaimed to you that eternal life that was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We had a new granddaughter born into our family this year, last year. 2016 and Sally and I weren't able to go to Michigan they're 500 miles away and we just weren't able to get up there this summer when we usually go and so we we waited till Thanksgiving to go and we'd uh we'd heard about Miriam and we'd seen pictures of her and we'd Skyped with her and that was great and then we got to go and be with her look at this picture of grandma Suddenly, suddenly we could hold her. We could make her laugh. And she'd fall asleep in our arms. And there's no Skyping in the world, you know, that compare with that. John says, that's what we're telling you. It's not just reading about God now. It's God in our midst. People had been healed before. But now this was God himself wrapping his arms around the untouchable leper. God's word had been heard before, but now it was God himself telling us what we needed to know and how we could know him and how we could be in a relationship with him and what God wanted us to be like and to experience. Demons had been cast out before, but now suddenly it was God himself, the holy God of the universe, confronting Satan and driving him out. It had all changed because of the birth of this baby. So how did God do it? How did that change take place? God found a way. God's love. Listen to this. God's love is greater than your sin. And God Himself, the sinless, holy God, living a sinless, holy life, died on the cross in punishment for sin. You see, I can't die for your sins. I can't take the penalty of your sins on myself because i got to pay for my sins myself. But Jesus, the eternal Son of God, holy, was able to take upon himself the sins of the world so that when God looks at you, he doesn't see you in those dirty rags of sin. He sees you as his son clothed in righteousness in the blood of Jesus Christ. So Jesus has done for us what we could never do for ourselves. The Apostle Paul, in writing to the Ephesians, put it this way. 
He says, remember at that time that you were separated from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. He came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those of you who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by the one Spirit. I remember, I remember the, the day when that changed for me. I had grown up in, um, in a really great church, and I think it was a church that emphasized pretty strongly the holiness of God. You know, the, the worship services were kind of formal because that's how you uh, worshipped God. And, and when you talked to God, you used King James English, you know, and you, and everything was pretty reverent and respectful because he was this holy God. And, and I grew up with that and I believed in God and I believed that Jesus died for my sins, but it was so, such a distant kind of thing. I don't know if that makes sense. And I was in high school. I love to tell this story because it, it was my watershed time. And, and our church hired a, a college kid from Wheaton College to be our youth director. And he would come out on weekends and on Wednesday nights. His name was Bob Radcliffe. And he was really tall and really skinny. And, and he was really ugly. I mean, he was just, <laughs> he was the homeliest guy. But he loved God and he loved kids and I loved him. And one day he asked me if I'd like to be a part of a small group, just get some of the high school kids together, and, and we just spent some time you know, talking and studying the Bible together. And I said, I'd, I'd really like to do that. So on the coming Sunday night, we met in a little office there. I made the mistake one time of calling it the old secretary's office. I was corrected. It was the office, the old office of the secretary, not the old secretary's office. <laughs> So we're meeting in this little room and there were, you know, like five or six of us there and we did some Bible study and we talked and shared and then, and then Bob said, oh, okay, okay, well let's, let's pray. And so I did what I always did when I prayed because that's what you did when you prayed. I folded my hands, I bowed my head, I closed my eyes and God, and Bob began to pray. Remember? I've told you this before, I know. And he says something like, ah, oh, Jesus, I've got this exam on Thursday and my girlfriend is really upset that I'm down here spending time with these kids instead of spending time with her. I'm feeling a lot of stress. Well, he's saying that kind of stuff. And I opened my eyes and looked to see who he was talking to. Because I knew you couldn't talk to God like that. God was holy and lifted up. and, And over the course of those next few weeks and months, an amazing thing happened. Jesus moved. He moved from being seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, which in that church we confess that every week in the Apostles' Creed, and I believed it with all my heart. He moved from being just that to being the Jesus that I could know personally who cared about me. And as a high school student, when my locker would be stuck and I couldn't get it open, I'm late for class, he's right there with me. And at night, when I wanted to talk to him, he's sitting there on the edge of my bed and he understands what it's like to be a teenager and he cares about me. And suddenly that holy God 
with somebody real in my life and and it changed the course of my life forever so if we're going to make this new year's a time of maybe some starting over or making things a little different or a little better i would suggest that this might be a great goal for you uh, this year to grow in your fellowship with god because god himself god with us emmanuel wants to be a part of your life you know he gave the life of his son jesus christ so that this holy god could relate to a sinful person like you and like me so how do you get to know somebody well you find out about them right you know you find out things about them how do you find out things about god i would suggest this is the primary way i would just encourage you to say i want to go want to find out more about god i would suggest maybe because uh, the bible is hard to read and it's hard to understand maybe start with the accounts of jesus life one of the gospels matthew mark luke or john just read through it try to get to know the the jesus who's pictured there so we get to know somebody by finding out about them and then we get get to know them through spending time with them and i would encourage you to figure out some ways that you can spend some time with god our daily scriptures online is a little little bit a good thing that's a good way to do it but to try to find some time that you can build into your schedule where you can actually just think about god and talk to him cuz he knows you anyway right it's not like you got to hide the junk in your life he knows about it anyway talk to him about it he understands your fears your disappointments your loneliness your anger I had somebody just recently, you know, say to me, uh, you know, I'm angry at God right now. I said, that's okay. God can handle that. You know? Spend some time with God. Make this a year when you get to know Him, when you move closer in your relationship with Him, because God has already done the hard work of providing a way for us to draw near to God. Emmanuel, God with us. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, you are holy. It, in many ways, it would be such an awesome thing if we could have that vision that Isaiah had of you and your holiness high and lifted up and we could understand maybe better that you are totally holy and glorious and magnificent and th- things that we never experience in, in this life any place else or any other way. And that we could understand our sinfulness and our lostness and our separation from you because of our sin and to understand that you did for us on the cross what we could never do for ourselves. My my prayer for myself, because this is a goal for myself, and my hope and my prayer for these friends is that this would be a year when we would grow in our relationship with you, that we would understand and appreciate and thank you that you are Emmanuel. God with us. Amen.